Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 16th, 2020, episode 166, Just in Time. Hi everyone, Kevin England here, back again with another episode of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. I'm happy to bring you this discussion that you'll hear in this episode. It checks two boxes for me. One of my favorite formats for the show is to just sit down with another beekeeper whenever you get a chance. And the second box is I get to introduce Justin Schiffler, someone that I've known for a little while, and bring him into the program. Justin is a listener and an acquaintance can't say that word, acquaintance, that I've come to know. And we usually cross paths in the springtime when I head out to the spring meetings in Philadelphia area. As you'll hear, he hails out of that Pennsylvania region. And we usually see him at the Philly Guild meeting, and especially the Chester County meeting that occurs each spring. Typically, the person sitting across from me for these types of conversations is Bob Kloss. But on that particular Saturday... I went to the New Jersey State Winter Meeting by myself and Bob was enjoying the balmy weather of Guatemala while his son was getting married, so congratulations to them. I knew that Justin was planning to come to the meeting and we had loosely suggested that afterward we would catch up. And what you're going to hear is the two of us chatting over coffee while discussing things we learned earlier that afternoon after listening to Keith Delaplane speak. Let me take a moment to give a preview of what you're going to hear, and then I'm simply going to shut up and let you listen to our exchange. We took a short ride to the nearby main street of the town we were in, Bordentown, New Jersey, and ambled into a coffee shop to chat about the meeting. And it let me ask a little bit about Justin, who is a relatively new beekeeper, but has jumped in with both feet and actually the deep end of the pool. You know, there's very little preamble as we were kind of already talking over a few things when I got the recorder working and kicked off capturing what was said. Uh, You know, I just said it was going to be brief, but I have to share a Kevin moment. I cooked my trusty portable recorder in Africa. Since I've started the program, I had a Zoom H6 recorder that I've used for years. Its last official act was recording Kai Heischert from the previous episode, 165. That afternoon, after I left Kai, I went back to the hotel room and plugged the power in so that I could listen to the recording and see that it came through okay, and it literally cooked the device. A whiff of ozone, a smell of burnt plastic. It cooked the device in an instant. You know, note to self, make sure that the power plug is a step-down transformer when you plug it into a plug overseas. Anyway, I had to procure a replacement, and this was the first time I used my new recorder, which is a Zoom F1 recorder with the shock mount stereo-mounted capsule add-on. I had no idea how it was going to work, and we were in a really noisy place. No sooner did we start to talk and they turned the music on loud behind me. I had a speaker right behind my head. And then as we sat there, more and more and even more people came in. And you'll note that it gets progressively louder as the discussion goes on. The bad news is we were using loud voices by the end of the recording just so we could hear each other. It's a little loud. So the good news is the recorder did an admirable job at getting both Justin and I while somewhat relegating the rest of the background loud noise to that, to the background. I was pretty sure uh, by the end of the recording that we weren't going to be able to hear each other in here. And I will say that the word I'll choose is salvageable. So you have what we have. I, I know that uh, sound quality is such a touchy topic with listeners and I'm attempting to temper and manage 
expectations end of Kevin moment. I guess I'll implore you to go with the flow, get yourself a cup of hot joe, just like we did, and pretend you're sitting down with two beekeepers in a really popular coffee house. Here's my sit down with Justin Schiffler of Hat Trick Honey Company. It's Saturday, February 1st. I'm here in Bordentown, New Jersey with Justin Schiffler. We're at Under the Moon Coffee Shop. Just left the state meeting for New Jersey. Justin came over and uh, how I always talk to Bob Gloss about two beekeepers in a bar where this is two beekeepers sitting in a coffee shop. And um, we had a tick list of a bunch of different things to talk about after the meeting. And, said we'd get together and just, just chat about things. So what'd you think of the meeting today? Uh, I liked it. I've seen Keith Delaplane at our Chester County conference two years ago, so I was a little worried it might be redundant, but uh, I thought there was a lot of new information and and I was pleased with uh, some of the notes I took yeah. to take back to the club and share with other beekeepers. Yeah, you know, um, I remember seeing Keith before and honestly, I don't remember what he talked about, and I wasn't sure whether today would excite me or not. I was indifferent, but honestly, the two talks gave me a lot of things to think about and connected some dots for me. Um, I, I thought it was outstanding. I, I got my money's worth on that. Yeah, Wish I had my notes in front of me, but there was a couple a couple interesting things. Uh, I think one of the big eye openers was that a spotty brood pattern is not just a failing queen, but it could be a sign of uh, effects of inbreeding. Yeah. We talked a lot about how inbreeding leads to the hive sort of being more hygienic, and the fact that they're 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 taking away a lot of larvae and eggs that that they don't like due to this reason or that, and. You know, people are real quick to want to requeen their hives if they don't have a full frame full of capped cells. I'm not realizing that's not exactly the best thing. He, he started down that path of talking about haploid, diploid, which we've heard a bunch of different times at our meetings. And I, I was trying to figure out where he went with this, but he opened that topic up to come back to the point you just made. And I, too, got an aha moment of that. I'm currently writing uh, a session that I'm going to teach at a beginner's course about queen problems, and one of them I know is that the queen could potentially have an inbreed problem where she mated with drones that have the same alleles, and, and not to confuse anybody, but bad genetic material, let's just say it that. And what he showed was that if the queen is really poorly mated with a bunch of... Uh, Bees, you're going to end up being a bad brood pattern. And I'd heard David Tarpey talk about that once, but the way that he explained it was uh, really, I thought, pretty well done. Uh, it, it made it more cohesive for me. Yeah, th this was the first lecture I've been in that talked about inbreeding and some of the problems and some of the causes. So I, I thought it was very interesting. And, you know, to take away another good practical takeaway, because learning's always great, but after every lecture, I always wonder, what, what's the takeaway? Did I really learn something applicable? And he seemed to suggest that, you know, when you have a dead out in a yard, if, if you pull hives from another yard to put in there, that that's causing problems. Not necessarily with inbreeding. I went off track. Not with inbreeding, but that point was... Um, that that apiary might have been developing resistance and a, and a cohesion with the mites, and you disrupt that when you bring in mites from a different bee yard. So that point was invalid. I mean, he's kind of saying, uh, my takeaway from, from it was that... Uh, some bread for you. Thank you. My takeaway was you need to have lots of drones, which we know already. But a side effect of not having a lot of drones and also... The point he made about the, the guy in the teaching apiary who just kept sourcing genetic material swaps from in his apiary. That's where I was Never going. bringing anything in. You end up having the same genetics all over the place. And 
you run into that collision where inbreeding occurs. Because, look, if, if we're buying packages or doing whatever and we're putting them out in our yards, they're mating with everybody in the neighborhood. But if you're the beekeeper and you just keep sourcing the same genetic material, don't bring anything in, you're going to end up with this situation. And it was a neat aha moment. That was the connection I think I wanted to make. Yes, he was talking about when he was first getting mentored. I think by his first beekeeping mentor, Mr. Champ. Yeah, Champ. Yeah, Champ. Um, that he taught him, you know, when you have a queen problem, you just take this brood frame out of this hive next door and you put it in there, and that's how he always solved his problems. And and he thought that was the easiest thing in the world, and he had great bees. And, and Keith said that he never saw a real beehive until he, he started working at university or maybe started yeah. attending university. Yeah, university. And he saw real booming hives with good genetics. And... Um, and he, he realized the brood patterns that he saw, which were always a little bit scabby and suspect, were off. Yeah, that's kind of funny. That was a great story. But then the second takeaway was his other talk about polyandry, which had to do with queens mating and the number of drones they mated with. And I had never heard anybody talk about. I, obviously, the the thing they always tell you is more mating is better, right? If a queen flies yes. out and gets mated with 12 drones better than 6 drones. But I always thought that from a longevity standpoint, and meaning it would have more sperm or donation material from, which means it would be able to lay eggs longer. He correlated to say that there's other benefits from multiple matings and it had to do with the genetic material and the outcome of the hive itself more resources more this that they could attribute that to better genetics yes and uh there's there's another from another i want to say might have been a podcast i was listening to they were talking about the volume of mating fluids a queen experiences is really beneficial to her health not just the diversity of the, the, the drone sperm, but um, all that material and the more mating, it's, it's, it provides for a longer, healthier lived queen as well. So not just to have a, for the genetic diversity aspect, but there's some kind of health benefits of this. So, so tick off the things that he said, help me with this, right? He said that they would be more resistant to mites if they got mated more. That was one. Yes. The hive would be more productive and make more honey, proven, if it was mated more. Yes. Correct. The hive would have better immunity if it was mated more. I think there was an uptake of propolis collection. There was some data about propolis collection as well. They were better uh, foragers of propolis with the more genetic diversity. When he was leaving... What's funny is they were up front trying to fix the... He had detached his computer, and in order to hook him up, they unhooked him from the conventional system in the room. And so they asked me to come up there and help them with the configuration. Well, they figured it out just as I walked up. So I got to walk him out. I don't know if I got to tell you this. And I asked him, does more mating equate to longer life with the queen? And he turned to me and he said, Nobody's ever asked me that, and that's a great question. And he said, you know what, if I think about it, we have ways to understand that, and we probably have the data. So he said, I'm going to go back and find that <laughs> Yeah, I don't recall. I listen to so many things and read so many things. Uh, it's hard to recall where you heard something, but there was definitely you know, a benefit in more mating, uh, healthier queens. I almost thought it might have been his presentation before on um, polyandry and, and queens two years ago at the Chester County Conference, but it must have been someone else if he's never been asked that. Well, one of the things he said in that talk, too, just a factoid that I thought was interesting, and, you know, you study, you hear, you listen, you read things, and then they go away, and then somebody mentions them, and you go, oh, yeah, I remember reading that somewhere. Um, he said that, how does the queen know when she's made it enough? What's the clue? Do you remember what he said? He said he had like a, there was like a stretch receptors yes, to see how full her abdomen was. Right. And I remember reading something about genetics in the queen 
and how they determined that. When they did the genome, they found the gene, and when they were looking at the gene, they determined that that's what the gene was for. The gene turned on the electrical signal for the stretch. Stretch receptor. Receptor that said, spermatheca is full, stop getting mated, go back to the hive. I think in the same article I can't recall the source from, it discussed that even though the queen might mate with two dozen drones, she's only taking a fraction of all that genetic material into the spermatheca. So the, the, the amount of fluid the queen will take during all her mating flights is so much greater than what's stored in the spermatheca. So how does that get sorted out within the queen? Which sperm get to make it and be stored in the spermatheca? Yeah. So that, that that was a little bit fascinating too. It was a quite a disparity of of how much uh, drone donation she took and versus what she kept. So what I love about these talks is if you can hit every slide and every slide you convey some little factoid that we never knew or it's all those little things that they tell us that make it all come together for me right and connect the dots my ever quest to know why right one of the things he said is that when the queen releases sperm what did he say eight eight sperm Every single time, or I forget the number. Eight, the number's not eight important, or, but it was something like that. Yeah, eight or nine sperm. Eight or for, nine sperm for every get egg released for as every she tries egg. to fertilize. Yeah, it, it's just all those little things. Like I didn't picture that. I would have. You would think it would be one, but that's not the way it works. You know? And maybe part of the queen problems, you know, could possibly be a byproduct of some of these chemicals if they mess with navigation or fertility, things like that. Maybe some queens can't release the amount they want or maybe they release way too much and that's why they fail early perhaps as a as a non-lethal symptom of all these chemicals we're throwing all over the planet yeah so all in all the, the talk with Keith was was excellent um, I, I didn't ask anybody if I record today if I could record uh, last time I spoke to him he told me he was okay with us filming him but I didn't didn't do that today but I did record the audio and what I do with those, Justin, is I pop them on my phone and I listen to them over again because whenever you listen to something, you get to pick up the parts that, you know, there's times when somebody's saying something and your brain goes off on a tangent. You're thinking. It's, it's learning and thinking. You're thinking louder and than you're you listening. when you go back, you're like, oh, I didn't hear that part or pick that up. So That's my problem with my kids. They say something, my mind goes off on a tangent yeah. thinking of a question, and I miss something they said and you ask about it. And they're mad they didn't hear what you, you didn't hear what they just said. Yeah. So I, I think this was definitely worth a listen because there was so much richness and you know, again it speaks to these you would think after how many years of doing this that it wouldn't make sense to go to these. You've heard everything you could possibly hear, but I I don't see it that way. I mean I'm I'm always learning something and you know how much studying I did to for, for all the stuff that I had to get through, the, the fact that somebody can keep raising new facts or ideas. What what did you think of um, Dean Polk, the blueberry guy? The Rutgers study? Yeah. That was, um, that was a lot of data. Um, it was interesting. He was, he was looking at all the trace chemicals he was finding, and his control group versus his experimental hives, even though I think he was only doing three per trailer, uh, it seemed to be a small small sets he was measuring from, but it, was a, it seemed like a really well done study of the chemical combinations that resulted in larva mortality, and it all makes sense. I mean, beekeepers think this all the time, and it's nice to see people proving it. Yeah. I mean, if you ask anybody, you think chemicals are ruining the planet, everybody would say, yeah, chemical companies want to say prove it and, and individually that's how they're tested and that's how they get improved I believe the government they right? did they the, get the chemical companies I'm not a show for the chemical company but the chemical companies do what the government tell them they have to do but you would hope the scientists too for the chemical companies would propose how to test it well they know the science it just but if you get a lot of peer review you hear of these studies that the, the chemical companies do like bear and stuff scientists look at this and the peer review of the studies say yeah, how how can you put 
how can you count that as being safe or, or that establishing the, the lethal dose to bees? It, there, there's always lots of problems with any study, but some of them don't seem to be done too well. And, you know, if you do a study on one chemical at one time, just like the Rutgers study today just showed, not so bad for lar larval mortality. But once you start combining two or three different chemicals, the larvae mortality skyrockets, and I think everybody's heard that at least once, if they're a beekeeper, that the cocktail of any couple chemicals together is, is, is very bad. I have an early episode in my catalog of Mary Ann Fraser when she was working for Penn State talking about the synergistic effects. It's been known forever. So let me give you the backstory. I told you I would tell you more about Dean. Dean's journey is really fascinating. He, he and uh, Tim Schuler connected somewhere along the line, and Tim started getting involved in, as a state atheist, working with them to try to solve some of the beekeeper problems in pollination. And the problem then was improper pollination, not good fruit. But as, as the problem of how to pollinate uh, blueberries and other things came about, what really came about was some of the conflict between the growers and the, and the pollinators for killing bees. And Dean has talked about in our meetings in the past, his evolution to get where he is today, where you saw it for the first time. But the first thing was to talk to beekeepers and growers and do research, recon about what they do. Then what he, he as a Rutgers guy, understands the regime of different treatments, why they do it, when they do it, how they do it. And he had to go back and correlate to the behavior of the bees when they get dropped off, when they go in, are they in the field, are they being sprayed, and all that stuff. So somebody mapped the before to the after journey of, I drop bees off, and this is what happens during the time when uh, pollination is required to the fruit being picked and beyond with the bees going out. They found at the time a bunch of collisions where sprayers were coming in and putting stuff on. Beekeepers would say, well, in this window, this is what's going on with the bees. You can't be spraying. And so they, they agreed to collaborate to change some of the practices, but yet the bees kept dying, right? Or, you know, nobody wanted to bring their bees into, especially cranberries that he talked about a little today, but blueberries because they were leaving unhealthy. They were, they were really damaging the colonies. So then what it turned out was, for one year they introduced a new chemical in it, and that year they had both super bad pollination, meaning not a lot of fruit and a lot of bees dying, and they came to a consensus that they would go after these grants and study this pollen part that he brought out. So he and Tim went through and got all the pollen samples and started to look at what was in there. Then when they got the first couple samples, they realized that they needed to do a better job, so they went and got the SARE grant. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a lot. I'm skipping a lot of steps of what happened, but the basics are the data that you got. You know, originally they were looking in the hives of the pollinators, commercial people, and at some point they said, we can't really get a clean study, an objective study, if we don't do this, so they had to go get bees. And as you saw, he got three bees on a trailer, three sets of trailers, and he was taking them to different yards and got agreement. And so it took a couple of years for them to uh, transcend talking to coming up with a plan to put bees out and then get a proper way to measure them and test them, get the funding for all the, you heard what he said, how much do you say it costs for a test? It's like $400 a piece, right? Yes. And they did 45 tests this year. So, and Rutgers never funds this stuff, never. Uh, I'll talk to you off camera here about <laughs> the Rutgers thing. Um, that's not a dig, it's just reality of how, how that works with them. But um, Dean is so committed to, to working to solve this problem. And he gets to play the mediator. You heard him say next week he gets to go back and talk to the growers and show them what they learned. 
And it's tough love between these guys, right? He's he's stuck in the middle. Um, you know, and he's got an ally in Tim Schuler. Part of one of the things Tim did when he retired is he wanted to be able to be more involved in solving the blueberry industry for, for New Jersey. And, you know, he's a commercial uh, pollinator of blueberries. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, you've mentioned it on the podcast yeah. before. So, so today's results are... I think getting closer to what their objective was is defining the problem and then once they have the data, they can then go figure out how this is going to work. Our our Chester County president two terms ago is a master beekeeper from Maryland. Merle Stone is his name and he does a lot of blueberry, that's where he keeps all his his bees on blueberry orchards. I've met him. And I think he would have found this information very fascinating, and I'm going to talk to him about it. But this whole this whole study that's being done by Rutgers just brings to mind what Dr. Reed Johnson did out in California, connecting the dots to figure out, well, hell, they're they're spraying when the yeah. bees are there, yeah. and he, you know he he kind of. Right, that whole thing it. in that almond thing where they where they were saying, "Oh my God, what happened?" It was almond almondgeddon. <laughs> it was somebody called it almondgeddon, right? Yeah, um, it's just not only it is was it, like a dull moment, right? <laughs> yeah, not only is it imp- how aren't the pollinators getting coordinated with the growers, especially when it comes to chemical usage? I, I just we must apparently not have enough regulation when it comes to chemical usage for notification to be happening in the in the right channels because I mean even in PA our hives are required to be registered with the, the PA Department of Ag and theoretically we're supposed to get notified if there's any sprains in the area for, for West Nile virus for yeah. this or that yeah. and rarely do people get notified and people want to blame the Department of Ag but I think more than anything it's the, the growers using the chemicals not following the proper procedures of usage and notification and spraying so, you know, the chain is not there. There was, I don't remember which meeting I was at, but there was a meeting talking about the process of that. And they're supposed to notify you. However, if they have an emergency situation, because of the emergency, they're allowed to proceed without the notification. There's always loopholes, but right. I, what, what emergency situation could there be where chemicals have to be, be used I, I just don't buy it. You walk out in the field and you see something. <laughs> it's, um... Right? I mean, people who make money cutting down trees will come and tell you a tree on your property needs to be cut down because it might fall on your house, right? Yeah. I, I just... I'm a big tree hugger, and... I'm, I'm with you on that. And, yeah. and every time a tree gets cut down, I, I just... Why? Why? Do they just need more sunlight? Is there damage to their foundation? Or is there some person with a chainsaw that needs some money that convince them somehow probably with shady details why that tree needs to come down um, who's to say but yeah so you know what I want to switch gears for a second this is kind of ass backwards I guess but uh, I don't think I we I've known you forever and it's funny I, I didn't introduce you <laughs> so so tell us a little that's bit what, about yourself sorry that's I, what editing's for yeah We'll, we'll do this backwards, though. It's okay. Um, you're from Pennsylvania. We've met. You listen to the podcast, and then we've met at conferences and um, exchanged emails and whatever. Um, Hatrick Honey. Hatrick Honey. We've talked about you in the past. Yeah, so in tw- 2017, my wife asked me if I would take a beekeeping class with her. She wanted to get chickens um, and, and bees. And I think what sparked the interest in bees was two years prior, uh, we had moved into our new house, uh, moved from a a duplex into a one-acre property, so we had space to expand a little bit, and um, we were able to have chickens there due to the ordinance. And we had a chest freezer that my mom had given us, but the new house had a fridge in the basement so we didn't need the chest freezer so it sat there for a year I was like it's taking up space let's sell it put it on Craigslist and the guy that came and picked it up I was helping him carry it out of the basement and I you know casually asked him you know you just buy a lot of frozen meat or, or something like that you need a, you need a chest freezer he goes no I'm a beekeeper and I'm 
that really what wanted it for. Struck, struck me out. I'm like, that's funny. I couldn't understand. I'm like, well, what do you need a, what do you need a uh, freezer for for beekeeping? Well, you know, you got to freeze equipment to to help prevent disease and pests and and this and that. So we got to chatting a little bit, and I thought that was kind of intriguing. And I got talking to him, and he wasn't a professional beekeeper; he's just a hobbyist. And at the time, he had I think 34 hives. He told me, and I thought that sounded crazy. Like, wow, 34 beehives? That sounds dangerous. And uh, and he went on his way. And I told my wife about it, and she said, "Oh yeah, my coworker Marlena. She she she's a beekeeper too." And I said, oh, that's interesting. So she got talking to her about it, and I think them talking at work got her a little more interested. And something had always stuck in my mind back from college days. When I was in college, uh, I was working and I was living at a house. I was renting a room from my uh, my state attorney deputy general. There's a couple of these lawyers, but she was involved, heavily involved in the state as a lawyer, uh, working underneath the, the state attorney general, I think is the proper title. And I met her fiancé. And her fiancé had MS. And it was the first person I ever met with MS. And I used to always listen to NPR, driving to school or driving to work. And I remember hearing an article of how MS um, patients are getting a lot of relief from bee venom therapy, bee sting therapy. And I thought that was amazing because uh, I'm a tree hugger. I guess I could consider myself a naturalist. Uh, As Ross Conrad once said at one of our meetings, you know, everything we, we, we need can be found in nature we just lost our way and don't know how to find it bees help us do that in a lot of aspects so that was always intriguing so the interest in bees she asked me to take a class with her and uh, I fell in love with it we, we took a one-day class through the Chester County Night School held at the historic Harrington house um, near Philadelphia by a Philadelphia beekeeper uh, Philadelphia beekeepers guild member Bruce Gill and um, we, we thought it was fascinating. Um, really friendly, really friend, friendly group. They were putting their last nuke order in for that year. Uh, he said, "Do you want to order a nuke with us, or do you want to you give it some time?" And we dove into it face first. Uh, exactly what we recommend everybody not to do. Uh, so we, we wrote him out a check for the $185 for the nuke. Uh, it was a northern nuke. He assured us it wasn't from the south or pollination. And he said, uh, you know, what kind of equipment do you guys have? And, uh, nothing. <laughs> nothing yet. He rolled his eyes and he said, he said, can you come back next Wednesday? Why? I have some equipment you can, you can have. Oh, really? He gave us a whole hive wow. um, with, with frames, with comb. Wow. And we were blown away. We're like, wow, are all beekeepers like this? It was, it was fantastic. So we were all excited painting and restoring some of the wood. You know, it wasn't in the best condition. Uh, some of the, the wax we had to you know clean up and we got to melt some of it down on the little double boiler and old on the stove with the old Boy Scout mess kit. And we still have some of that wax to this day because it's the best smelling wax we've ever had. We keep a little chunk in every car in case we have road rage. We can pull out the wax and just smell <laughs> it. Um, so, so that's where we started. So we ordered a nuke that year. Um, found another local person to get another nuke. And so we started with two hives. And the running joke was our, our kids were all in their late teens, but we thought it was about time to teach them right about the birds and the bees. So that's how we started, and uh, I turned into a, a information junkie. I really loved delving back into to learning about something new and something so fascinating, like honeybees. That was my impression of you, is that you were, immediately when I met you, you were a new guy. I remember the meeting where we sat, I think we sat at lunch one day. That's how we got to talking. And uh, I remember how, one, the passion, and two, the amount of depth you knew for a new person. What I said to you is, it would be neat to follow you from start as a new guy to, it was obvious you were going to do this like crazy thing. So... Yeah, we actually first met at the Solomon Parker talk at the Berks Bee meeting. Yeah. As we first met, um, we didn't get to chat too much after that. I think you had some tight time constraints, but I was happy to meet my favorite podcaster. And um, so that was, that was a highlight from there. And uh, yeah, I became information junkie, doing a lot of reading, uh, Facebook beekeeping groups, 
Uh, I'm addicted to. I love chatting with people. Uh, not so much as a, a know-it-all. People always bash second-year beekeepers or first-year beekeepers. Like, as soon as they learn something, they're know-it-alls. But I was always thirsty for knowledge, asking people the techniques they did, what did they do, how did they overwinter. Going into your first winter is probably the most stressful thing, I think, in beekeeping. Not the first time you handle bees. Yeah, yeah. It actually turns out to be going into your first winter, I you are paranoid. You. And so I'm picking everybody's brains. And, you know, you get everybody from experienced old-timers who say, you know, what do you do for your winter configuration? Nothing. <laughs> to, you know, people who are building a one-inch one inch thick styrofoam capsule to put over top of their, their hive with no upper entrance. You know, all these different techniques. So which way did you go your first winter? First winter. Before we made it to the first winter, one of our club members was moving. Um, way out west and he was selling off his hives and he had hives in many different locations so we actually bought two more hives going into our first winter so we went from two hives to four and it was a great price to start with but the guy told me don't send me any money until you do a full hive inspection I haven't seen him in a long time uh, and we thought just the equipment alone even though it was used was well worth the money yeah. uh, I think I think he was going to charge us 120 per hive and that's fair enough. When we went and visited him one time, you know, lots of bees coming in and out. We saw pollen coming in and out. Uh, two deeps, I think, three supers on on two of the three hives. One of the hives had no activity, so we figured it was a dead out. And he said, don't send me any money until you do a full hive inspection. And by golly, we did a full hive inspection the next weekend, me and Jesse, and, and uh, zero stores. They were almost totally robbed out, even though we didn't see any yellow jackets. Yeah. What actually turned out, we found out, one of the hives, they were about 10, 15 feet apart. One of the hives had a yellow jacket's nest right underneath it in the ground wow. that I didn't figure out for several weeks. But, uh, you know, I called up uh, our club president, uh, Keith Jardine, and then uh, the guy selling the equipment, John Henley, and I'm picking their brains. What do I do? What do I do? And John said, first... How sixty a hive sound? Yeah, I was going to buy them anyway. Just feed them. Just feed them. So I think I fed them between the two of them a five-gallon pail of syrup, two two pails a week for a couple weeks. So I overfed them. Then they got nectar bound. Yeah. So I went the whole because I was asking how much should I feed them? Feed them as much as they'll take. So I overdid it, and I even you know, found the poor queen running around, every cell filled with syrup. She had nowhere to lay. I'm like, they're never going to have enough brood to survive winter. It's like, oh, no. I went from them dying to me killing them. But they both came through winter fine, actually. Oh, really? Those two hives I went with 30-weight um, roofing paper, wrapped them, and they already had styrofoam lids. The, the, uh, ultra, no, B-Max. The B-Max lids. The outer covers that are there, the, the, the thick kind of, styrofoam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just it's like a poly lid, basically. I they're the super engineered. They have bottom boards and other things, right? But they're. I think so. But they cover they make an outer cover. Wonder. They yeah. make an outer cover for for yeah. regular hives too. Yeah. Um, not the plastic, but the poly hive lid. Not that plastic one with all the grooves for ventilation, but just the poly lids. So the poly lids provided some upper insulation. I think. We knew enough to put some insulation underneath that as well. I think we did candy boards. The club was big on making candy. They had a candy board making party, Chester County Club. Um, our current president now, he hosts the candy board party. We had like four or three turkey fryers going where we'd make up the candy board batches and pour them at his barn and I'll lay them all out to, to dry and cure off. So, so candy that boards... Candy boards seem to be a good option. Gives them a roof of emergency food. Do they food. eat that stuff? I mean, oh yeah. Like the, the blocks that you saw for sale today. You put them in the hive. You think they would? Because I put stuff in and I come back in spring and I end up taking it back in the house. I, I still have. Well, what I was told was if they have good stores, they won't use it. Because yeah. another weird thing we did our first winter, a technique that they described. By October first, your your super of honey, you're going to leave them. Put it on the bottom of the hive, and if they need that, they'll move it up. They have time to move it up to the upper part of your double deeps, and then they won't have brood in that super, and you can just throw it back up as your honey super then 
in the spring if you don't have any place to store it. So that was that was a technique recommended. So that made sense to us, especially when you you're starting out. You don't have a lot of honey supers. And in practice, does that work? No, we they did not move the syrup honey, the sunny that people from Monco Club call it, which is kind of odd, but they call it sunny syrup honey. Um, so we had all the you know, every hide had, had a super of syrup honey, and they didn't move it up at all. So we were left with the syrup honey that we just stored for the next winter, and you know, so we didn't confuse it with with real honey. So they didn't move it up, but then we didn't have brood in there either. But still, the drawn comb was unusable. When you're just starting out, you don't have a lot of comb resources, so that was a, a big hurdle of your second year getting them to draw a lot of uh, your honey, your, your medium frames out. This whole feed them and they're going to take it down thing, I don't, I don't know that I buy it. I, when do you ever? Now, if you scratch some, they'll take it down, but a lot of times, I, I don't know. You mean take it, move it in the hive? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was odd too. Putting putting that super on the bottom of the hive to act as a slatted rack also to insulate right. so maybe the, the the cluster would stay lower. That seemed to make a lot of sense. And you know, I asked you know some of my mentors why didn't they use this? Because one of the hives we only had one loss our first year. Like why did uh, why didn't they move that honey up? The hive had lots of stores up top. They well, they just didn't need it. So you must have fed them enough. They were good. They didn't move the honey up because they didn't need it. Good job. Yeah. Okay. That makes you feel good. Now, the two hives we had at home, uh, a fellow beekeeper was going in his first winter at the Burks Club, and he was using a technique he read in bee culture from a Vermont beekeeper. I don't remember who wrote the article, but the, his technique he wanted to try his first winter was he bought one-inch foil-faced foam, and he would make a complete shell and a special winter cover that would slide over top, no upper entrance. But these plans called for a couple inch gap between the roof of the hive, which was also a piece of foil faced foam to reflect IR heat back down. About, a, I think it was about a three inch gap between that top piece of foam and a screen mesh board. So the bees couldn't come up. Because if you didn't use the screen mesh, they would come up, the bees would stick to the top, and the IR heat wouldn't be reflected back down. And you can also put your winter feed on top of that screen. So he really liked the sound of that. And I, I asked him, well, are you sure you don't want to put one with an upper entrance in case that technique's bad around here? Everybody says vent, vent, vent. And he goes, no, I think I'm just going to stick with this plan and see how it goes. And I think both his hives overwintered just fine. No upper entrance, um, fully encased in a one-inch foil-faced foam. And you know, he can easily open it up and add food. They can eat through the screen. He must have used... I'm not sure what size mesh, but it would have to be less than a quarter inch mesh, I believe, because I think bees can go through quarter mesh. Uh, can't go through eight, so the bees couldn't come up. I think he just used eight mesh screen. So that worked out really well for him, but he had a lot of extra foam. So he asked if anybody wanted it. I said, heck yeah. Um, so I made two shells for two of my hives at home, so I kind of went overboard, so they had one inch foam the whole way around. And I was advised against it by one of my mentors. They said, you're also robbing them of any external heat that they could get on warmer days. And you have to keep that insulation on further in the spring. Then I'm going to take my tar paper wrap off because it'll be too much of a shock to them with the temperature fluctuations. Um, I said, okay. So I, I just kept it on longer and, and listened to what people were telling me. So that first winter, two hives, fully insulated, candy boards, the, the, the styrofoam outer covers that I, we painted, and um, only lost one, so it wasn't so bad. It's still heartbreaking. You lose your first hive, you feel terrible, you know. I'm, I'm toiling over the space the guy left at the top of the hive. To me, he rises, right? And if you put that gap where the bees can't be, what good is the... You know what I mean? That's heat that right. could be down in the frame area. Right, versus. right. I think a lot. I think I'm starting to realize a lot of our problems we face as beekeepers turns out to be too much space. Too much space. Too much space. A lot of times, yeah, if you're right. having problems, you can reduce the space in that colony. Uh, they're they're going to do better. More bees to less space for them to clean up, take care of, patrol, what have you. Especially if you're having a little bit of a a pest issue. I had one hive this year. 
Um, I believe they swarmed. Found queen cells. Queen you let your hive swarm or do you do swarm I, prevention? I try not to, but it happens. Yeah, you it know. happens. I just wonder. It happens. In fact, this past year, I think maybe all my hives have swarmed. I said I was going to do Demarion on all, all my hives this year, but we just didn't. We didn't do that. How many hives do you have now? Flash forward. Flash forward. This year, we got up to a max of 22 okay. colonies, um, but currently, right now, had a couple abscons. I think I was mentioning to you, I think Apivar, uh, the, the second dose of uh, Ap Life Var, but they just said, forget this, it's too strong. Had a couple uh, abscond, I believe, due to that. Uh, one, I think, the Apigard, which is also Thymol. I think it just overpowered the hive. You're the first person that I know of. Let's be clear that everybody knows what we're talking about. Not Apivar, Apa Life Var. Apa Life Var, yes. Which is a different product. Oh, I'm sorry. I said the wrong thing, right. So Apigard is Thymol Gel. Right. Apa Life Var is Thymol, Eucalyptus, and Menthol. So, so this year, I didn't do any OAV on any of my hives because I wanted to try Hopgard 2 strips, um, Apigard, Apolifar, Hopgard. Hopgard. And all the hive, I put them in all the hives. Yeah. And what they did was, a lot of them cleaned it off really really nice. You, you want them to clean it off and, and transport the, the beta acids around, supposedly. But what they do is, wherever the strips are, they totally remove the comb down to foundation around the strip. I've seen that. And I, I thought that was very odd, and they definitely quickly moved the brood away from that area. You know, the, the recommendation with the Apovar strips is is to uh, move it with the brood every couple weeks. And again, that's, that's kind of a huge hassle to do, and a lot of, a lot of uh, manipulation, but... So I, I, I wasn't I have thrilled yet with that. to hear one person, one, not one, who said, "I use uh, Hopgard. I love it." Suppose, not a single person. Supposedly, at one of our meetings recently, uh, it was told to us the Be Informed Partnership. The results were showing that it was more detrimental to use Hopgard strips than to not oh, use it. Is that you, right? You had a worse overwintering rate if you used Hopgard than not using it at all. Um, so that that was interesting. But you, you got to try different different things, you know, especially if you're trying to be more natural or using more organic right. means. Well, uh, it's one of the products you could use with honey. With honey, yes. Um, and I had never used formic before, but in one of my yards, my second bee yard, uh, early spring, I had a sugar roll count of one mite in hive one, fifty in hive two, and one in hive three, and four. Four was uh, was was a dead out, but that was anticipated. That, that colony was never building up well, and I didn't want to merge it with anything else. So that was odd. But that that the hive that had the sugar roll count of fifty, I mean, I, I maybe was a little heavy on the scooping of the bees for the test. But regardless, that's what I tried formic on, and the formic drop was terrific. I, I definitely recommend formic. But I. I I'm a fan of Formic. Moving forward, I'm definitely going to be using that. Yeah. Uh, the tried the OA dribble this winter for the first time. That's fairly simple, um, really effective from what most people say. Although I'm pretty worried I overdosed. It's a little real easy to, to get a little thumb heavy on on your your syringes. I have to say. Just acknowledging this place filled in. It was empty when we got in here. Now there's somebody at almost half the tables, if not more. So if you're hearing more ambiance, uh, yeah, sorry. We're trying to, to make sure that our voices come through. But it's it's a really it's a really neat venue. What a neat place! The, the ceiling decorations ceiling. and the wall decorations. Yeah. It's nice. And the coffee is good. <laughs> got a new coffee, so. so this is kind of ad hoc, right? We're just all over the place. What, what do you think um, 2020 brings for you? Well, we got inspected this past year to be able to reduce um, our aviaries a little bit and sell some bees. So that's something interesting to look forward to. I'm trying to figure out when the ideal time will be to be able to sell a nuke 
but if you have five over five, you still have another half of that new to make sure the time's right for them to make a new queen rather than selling the whole colony. Yeah. But if people want to buy 10 frames, maybe I'll sell the 10 frames. Like I said, I'm looking to downsize a little bit. You, you have an acre property. How many do you have on your house? At the home yard, right now, we have one, two, three, four. Four colonies at home still going. All Langstroth equipment? All Langstroth. One, one is a poly single. Four of my hives still alive. We have 12 total alive right now. Um, four of them are I'm experimenting with overwintering in a single deep. And surprisingly, the single deeps are doing well. Um, in the fall, they looked a little small because one of them was a a swarm I caught at my work that was queenless, started to have laying workers. I corrected that, and it's going to be one of those little things that you put way more effort into it than necessary. Yeah. But I was determined to save, just make it <laughs> save, a, save a drone laying, um, I mean a, a worker laying colony. And get it through winter. There's a lot of satisfaction with it. Right. As that's, that hive's looking good. Um, two other at the home yard are cutouts. Cutouts are notorious for not overwintering. I was told that when I started doing cutouts, when people give me advice, like just just to let you know, cutouts have a 80% failure rate of overwintering. Um, somebody told me. So I have two hives uh, that were from cutouts this year that are doing well. And one of them's in a single poly deep. Um, so, so they're doing pretty well. In fact, the last time I checked on them, they ate through their sugar brick, their, their, their candy brick, and were building comb up through the middle of it. Oh, really? Yeah. So, oh. you know, midwinter, they're building comb in there. Yeah. That's, um, a, that's a poly hive, right? I think. That, so, to be clear, I have a V-Box poly. You have a Lysen, right? Lysen slash Better Bee. I think it's, it's the same... License sold by Better Bee, but I think it's a standard hive from Lysen yes. that comes out of Europe. Yes. Um, and I have, I have a couple other single deeps that are looking pretty good. The one single deep in my third bee yard, this hive was interesting. I started mentioning earlier, uh, I believe they swarmed, and the queen never made it back. So when I went to check again to see she was laying, uh, there, were, there were wax moths and small hive beetles sliming it out but only in the west half of the boxes. There were two deeps and a super on that, that hive, and the bees were managing the east frames, five frames, just fine. They left the west five frames in each box go to hell with black small and small hive beetles. So that was really, really interesting. Strange. That was interesting. So I, I had so to, to collapse them down to the good re reduced it all down to one deep, and uh, they're doing really well. Again, too much space causes too much problems. I agree. And uh, it's a shame to have that damage in those frames. But, you know, you clean it up, freeze it, overuse it. They'll clean it out. I, I think I even, after I froze it, I put it out back uh, away from my hives and let the bees clean it up a bit. So I, do, I wouldn't say I'm an open feeder, but I do let them clean up stuff out back. And it surprises Jesse a lot if I don't tell her. She walks out back and there's... Thousands of I feel there. terrible because I have bee equipment all over the place after the season, after I hurt myself. I didn't really put it away well this year. It's just a mess. Stuff's a mess. But, yeah, so let's let's come back to um, the meeting. Just want to make sure. Was there anything else we, we heard today? I, I know one thing I was thinking of. Keith talked about a May meeting that they're going to have in Georgia, and the guest he's bringing over is from South Africa. From Pretoria. And he said uh, the Cape Bee. The Cape Bee problem, which Kai Hesher told me about, that they're dealing with, literally, where the Cape Bee has crossed over uh, into their area. It was normally confined to the southern tip. And it's infiltrating the hives that they have in Skutalata. And uh, they're going to talk about that in that meeting. What an interesting topic. It's, it's awful. I've heard about this before. And, yeah, there's, there's a, I wouldn't call it a mountain range at the northern part of South Africa. But that was usually the... The point where the Cape Bee didn't cross, right. but now they're crossing, and it has, it almost, from what I heard, 
it almost seems like karma because there seems to be a, a, a racial factor to the beekeeping in South Africa when it comes to people of color beekeeping and the apartheid elderly white beekeepers. There, there's, there's a distinct faction of, of the beekeepers in that area and um, one of the reasons they wanted to kind of keep the two groups separate was this migration of the Cape bees. And I think I had heard, and I don't remember where I heard this before, but the Cape bee was being migrated as retaliation for remnants of apartheid. So the way that... I know now where my source is. Jim Bob, who does traps, who does, who's traveled to Africa a couple of times, told us about this whole situation um, between the, the old white male beekeepers from the apartheid eras and the new beekeepers, including women and people of color, um, not being a welcoming group to the other, and that he's heard of covert operations to infiltrate the KP into their operations. Um, that that it's, it's speculated that it's being done on purpose because of the exclusion with all the land. Well, that's a wrinkle that uh, obviously didn't surface for me, but, it, but it's an interesting... Well, all I know is that, uh, you know, in short, for, for those wondering what the big deal is about, when the KP gets into the regular hives that they have where the KP is not customary, it just starts taking over the hive. It's almost like a parasite is the way he described it today. And it, there's no way to correct the problem other than to destroy the hive, which is... That's what, what it sounds. That's destroying. what it sounds like. Yeah, they go in, they kill the queen. Every one of them can lay eggs and and lay right. lay viable females right. who can also lay eggs. It's, it looks almost like a drone layer, but it's actually either a drone layer. Your queen is going bad, or the infiltration. Because you can't tell the difference, they kill the hive. Literally, it it sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. On a side note of a nightmare scenario, um, a podcast I listened to recently from Hive Talk with John and Dave. Have you ever heard of that one? Two ES Master Beekeepers. Oh, yeah. It's, um, uh, yeah, of course. John Smithlack and Dave Burns. Burns, yeah. Dave Burns. I was trying to think Mon Lane Honey. They, I love their humor. I They're, talked to them last time and I'm like, dude, I was talking to Dave. Where the hell are you guys? You know, you were recording and you and I, I browbeat them into like, I need something to listen to, and I want to hear you guys. So start putting stuff together. Come on. I like them. They, I love their humor, self-deprecation. It's great. But on one of the ones I recently listened to, which is you know maybe a year or two old, he was at an uh, John was at an entomology conference, and they were talking about the Trovolet labs, and. He said there's four different species of trophy labs, but basically, the whole key to trophy labs sounded like they cannot survive brood breaks. They cannot survive outside of, of brood cells for very long at all. So that almost sounded very comforting that if and when it comes to the states, you know, brood breaks are almost going to have to be mandatory if that's the whole key. Which is not bad for, for, for our regular girl and I, too. This is what I think is going to happen. We. I've been hearing that Sam Ramsey went across to get more information, and I expect when he returns, he's going to break open the dam of telling us what this whole trophy laylops thing is about. Which, if you don't know what a trophy laylops is, it's not Roa mite, it's trophy laylops mite, and there's the possibility that it will come over and create even uh, more worries for us as beekeepers. So. What I know is he's one of many who are looking at it in case it ever happens to determine what to do about it should it ever arrive on our shores. Yes, yes. Very proactive with the research. Probably very much needed. But that little tidbit on that podcast definitely decreased the worry of that possible threat. So that could be... Uh, a I'm not going to say a simple solution to a terrible problem, but that, that mite is very, very more damaging to the bees. Uh, I think they can reproduce even faster. 
and, and definitely more damaging. But something Sam Ramsey brought out one time, talking with Kim Bottom on the Beekeeping Today podcast, was even though brood breaks are great and a suggested practice, something we don't consider is the effect on a colony when you do a brood break, all those mites going to parasitize all the adult bees. Because they're not just going to die, they're going to come out and latch on to the adult bees until brood starts back up again. So yes, while, it, while it's cutting their brood cycle as well, they're not going anywhere. They're going on to all the adult bees. So something to look, something to consider. That, that was a, I, I listened to that and I thought that was an amazing point. Again, one of those things that if somebody stops to think about what actually happens from start to finish, that obvious thing of, well, if they're not in the cells, then they're coming out and getting on the bees. What happens to them, right? The obvious question. And I remember Jennifer Barry saying that you do the brood break and you do the treatment, kill the phoretic mites, and you can possibly stem that problem that occurs and you get a double edge, right? You, you get all the mites that were in the cell. Out. Out. Yes. And you kill the ones phoretic before they can do any harm. And that does seem like a good practice. That's something I considered maybe being part of our regiment moving forward that hasn't been implemented yet, but that seems like a good practice. But the I think the main drawback of that is getting that queen to lay again. So maybe you don't even try to reuse that queen. Perhaps... Perhaps you just sell that queen, you know, and then let all the bees turn into foragers for a, maybe an increased honey yield, and they raise a new queen, and and that's part of your brood break strategy. They, they had talked about, I'm trying to remember what Jennifer said, um, somebody called me away and I walked out in the middle of that presentation, but if I remember correctly, they were talking about caging her off. And then they also said, just take her out and put her aside, let her operate independently. And if you take her and put her in a new colony, then she has no brood. So she's going to lay eggs, and then you can bring that back in and take care of them when you reintroduce her to the hive. There's a bunch of different things, but she was doing a study or something. Yeah, remove the, qu- remove the queen, like, put her in a nuke. Right, put her in a why, nuke. Why you treat the old hive and right. then possibly put her back. But the, the old hive's going to start rearing queens. But that could be a detriment too, possibly. You know, they, yeah, but, they but start... I think the point was... They would start rearing queens, but as soon as we took her and put her back, they would kill all that and, and get back to business because they actually got their queen back. But once they have the queen pheromone, within an hour they're going to know it, and they'll go and tear all those things down that they started on because they're like, okay, magically. That, that was a point that Keith brought out today about the... What was the term you used? Sibling... Sororicide. Sororicide, but he was talking about uh, nepotism. And that the delicate balance, it was an interesting way he talked about it, is the sisters are in the hive, and they have given up their privilege to... They've yielded to the queen to produce, but yet they're kind of uneasy. And if the queen dies, the first thing they're going to do is like, well, okay, I'm going to go back into business here. So it's it's a very tenuous uh, situation for the new sociality and I. And another point he made was, how can you how can you lose a queen? And just throw a random queen in there and they accept her. Yeah. Why, why is that even possible? Because it should that. not be right. possible. It doesn't make any sense for them to accept a different, a genetic alien to that colony to accept them as their new queen. Yeah, using the term alien, and even when you bring another brood frame in, right, and pop it in, you would think that everybody would get upset about it, but they're so disassociated with each other at this juncture due to the fact that they're a super organism that they're willing to tolerate it. In fact, genetically, they're, they're actually have accepted this as a practice. So. Yeah, I, I've, heard, I've heard talks before that discuss the factions within a hive. The, the, the true blood sisters with the, with their true blood queen. You know, I think we've all experienced queen cells that get made and tore down and we don't know why. We think the hive's going to swim. My, 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 first, my first spring, my one hive at home, I found a charged queen cup. I was all excited, like, okay, okay, they're getting ready. Um, I need to do a split. So the next weekend, I prepared to go up and do a split. 
and they tore it down. But two frames over, there was a new queen cup with a charged cell and a char- you know, royal jelly and larvae in it. And I'm like, well, okay, maybe something was wrong with that one. So I, I waited another week, went to go split it again. They tore that one down. It's like they were just practicing or maybe they were just threatening the queen like, hey, get, get in gear or, you know. So th- I like to recount that story to people because just because you see a charged queen cell doesn't mean they're necessarily going to swarm. Probably the majority of the time they might. But I have one, you know, personal experience where I saw them tear it down twice, a half-built queen cell, charged, big, nice, fat larvae in there, and they just took it down. So that was very interesting. Yeah, so, all right, look, um, we've just been yakking, but this is what I wanted. I wanted us to do a brain dump, no particular order. I would say thanks, man. You know, we, we had talked about getting together for this meeting and then coming afterwards and having this chat and um, I really appreciate you taking the time and oh we're, we're going to see each other at the Chesco meeting right of course Come yeah down. yeah my pleasure it's uh I said it's my favorite podcast I like listen all the time it's the best produced one out there that the most varied I hear, topics I, I so appreciate it but I hear la 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 <laughs> I don't get fussy about it but thank you uh, oh you don't you like to hear compliments <laughs> No, I like it. Just the way you disseminate information, I think, is sort of how I would do it. You, 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 in your early podcast, you made it apparent that you were keeping a journal for your own records, but the way you learn things and try to explain them and disseminate them is, is excellent. It's almost like you were meant to be a teacher because you don't present it as, just listen to me because I know everything. You're like, this is what I'm finding out. This is what the bee community is finding out. Um, this is fascinating stuff, and you, it's like a, it's like a news reporter. It's usually very unbiased, and it, it's really well put. Well, and I, I, I enjoy that. it. And I'm, I'm glad we finally got a chance to put it in a recording. Hopefully, this is going to come out well. And um, probably won't. <laughs> yeah, but you know, if it doesn't, we'll have another time up for it. So thanks, I appreciate you taking the time to come on over and hang out with me today. My pleasure. My pleasure. So just a uh, short recap at the end here. Great conversation. You know, there were so many things brought out by Keith, and we were just riffing to his point. uh, Justin, we didn't have notes. We were just recollecting off the top of our head, and it's probably quite a few things. Uh, I did not ask Keith if I could record. I brought my gear, but didn't get a chance to do that. I did take my recorder and set it up and recorded the audio. At some point, there were so many different little factoids brought out by Keith that uh, I want to go back and listen to the recording again and see if I could pull out some things that struck me as impressions that probably should come back here. Uh, There were quite a few things that I remember just thinking now, but not to relabor the point of what you just listened to, um, that I wanted to explore a little bit deeper on this. And I have to commend Justin as he said, He took his notes, and he compiled them, wrote some summaries, and sent them back out to his beekeepers. That's really cool. That's such a neat thing that he did, and I have to commend him on on his work on that. Similar to the way I passed back through the program, he passed back through a written note to his beekeepers, and they should really appreciate that someone's out there getting the information for them and then bringing it back. So, yeah, kudos to him. That's it. I'm going to wrap it up here. We'll be back next week with another episode. I have something else in plan. And I'll say, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the program.